Good morning. The title of this morning's message is Equal Heirs, Equal Speaking. This morning I want to talk to you about discrimination, and in particular, discrimination against women in ministry. Now you might be thinking, is that really even a problem? <laughs> obviously I'm a female pastor, and obviously we have a female assistant pastor. So around here, at least, we obviously don't have a problem with females in ministry. But you might be surprised at just how much of the global Christian church does have a problem with it. And it's not necessarily because they want to. For many, they recognize that God works through females in all sorts of ministries, pastoral, missional, educational, musical, etc. But they just don't know what to do with some of the verses they find in Scripture that at least appear to them to be very clearly against women in ministry positions. So we will look at some of these this morning and hopefully clear up some of the confusion. Now, most Christian denominations around the world would agree that in Christ, men and women are equal in value. But then they turn around and forbid women to become ministers or to lay hold of any position of authority within their church. So basically, they believe women are of equal value when compared to men, but only in the eyes of God, or really only hypothetically. <laughs> they don't, in fact, embrace the idea of equality for women to men in actuality, in practice. In actuality, they discriminate against women for all authoritative positions. And they use their denomination's interpretation of Scripture as either their justification or mandate. In other words, they accept what has been traditionally and culturally taught as truth, and not what the best manuscripts in the original languages actually said. And that's because almost no one has had access to that kind of information before this time in history. So everyone was stuck with whatever tradition, or whatever traditional uh, translators came up with. <laughs> and even now, people the perceived safety of adopting their church's traditional views of women because they authentically do not want to be in opposition to God. So if those in authority say, no, this is naughty, <laughs> and if they can't find the information for themselves, they feel safer accepting their church's position, even though it may not be God's position. So many men and women who love God with all of their hearts have accepted traditional views of women in ministry because that is what they have been taught is actually God's will for both the women and for the church. But is it possible, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> that just like the Jews of Jesus' day, that our cultural traditions have made the true word of God of no effect in regards to women in ministry and in regards to women as equal heirs of the graces of God? I believe that it's not just possible, it's actually probable. <laughs> Let's look at what Jesus was talking about when he scolded the Jewish leaders regarding letting their traditions and their selfishness make the word of God of no effect. We find this in Mark chapter 7, beginning with verse 1. I have it in the ESV version. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him, to Jesus, with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. 
For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. Holding to what? <laughs> holding to the word of God? No. Holding to the tradition of elders. Not what God actually said to them. God actually only told Moses that the priests should wash their hands and feet before entering the tabernacle to do ministry. He didn't tell Moses that everyone needed to wash their hands before eating, although we now know it was a very good idea. <laughs> Just not for the reasons they thought it was a good idea. They thought it made them holy. God never told the Israelites to wash their hands before they ate. They took what God had told Moses and expanded it. <laughs> to enforce it on everybody. Continuing in verse 4. And when they come to the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. Why? Because they're afraid that while they've been out at the marketplace, they've come in contact unknowingly with some kind of germ? No. Unclean person. <laughs> they might have accidentally gotten unclean. So before they eat, they will wash again. And it continues. And there are many traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and of pots and on copper vessels and dining couches. Verse 5. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not wash according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? Now, in this scenario, the scribes and Pharisees are trying to pick a fight. <laughs> If you're going to pick a fight in public with Jesus, <laughs> you would do well to be prepared for some jaw-dropping truth. He said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. <laughs> Can you see that? Ouch! <laughs> well did Isaiah <laughs> prophesy of you hypocrites. As it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. So, what happened to warm and cuddly Jesus? <laughs> you know the Jesus that's so friendly? He's pretty sharp with Pharisees. Jesus knew who it was that needed a good kick in the butt <laughs> with the grace of truth and who needed a no condemnation hand of truth and grace. The self-righteous needed the law to show them where they had failed to meet its requirements. And in this case, to get a truthful look at themselves. That's why Jesus was so harsh with them. They were lying to themselves. They were deceived into thinking, if we just circumvent what God says, it's still okay, as long as it looks right. <laughs> and God's like, hmm, no, not all right. <laughs> Verse 7, in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father and mother must surely die. But you say, If a man tells his father or his mother, Whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, in other words, given to God then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you handed down. And many such things you do. 
what the Pharisees would actually do, and actually teach other Pharisees to do, <laughs> was to dedicate their possessions and income to God. It was simply a vow that they would take. They would say, all my stuff belongs to Jesus, so to speak. <laughs> and then they kept it. <laughs> you see, it was dedicated. They never actually gave the stuff they dedicated to God to the temple or to God. It was a religious exercise. And in their understanding, this excused them from doing what the law had mandated, taking care of their aged parents. And in that day and age, guess who the aged parent left surviving would usually be? Yep, the mama. <laughs> so they, what they were doing is they were throwing mama out <laughs> and not taking care of her and pretending that it was all very spiritual and godly. You ever wonder why Jesus didn't trust his own family <laughs> to take care of his mama? <laughs> because, yes, Jesus' brothers were Jews, and they were devout Jews, and there was nothing to prevent them from making this kind of arrangement. Even very religious men can often find ways to get around doing what God has actually told them or wanted them to do, especially when it came to money or women. <laughs> the life of women in the time of Jesus was very restricted, and not so much because of the law of Moses. Actually, when you look at the stories in the Old Testament, the women had a lot of freedom. That changed, <laughs> and they changed because of the traditions of men, not the law of God. It was men who came up with their own ideas about women. Women were thought to be inferior to men in every way, physically, mentally, and even morally. But God never said any such thing. <laughs> One of the reasons women were to be veiled was to keep men from lusting after them. It was thought that if a man lusted after a woman, it must be her fault. <laughs> because she's obviously wicked, trying to lure them into sin. This was their reasoning. <laughs> That's why they put veils on the women. They actually deemed the most beautiful women as being particularly wicked and evil. Sounds a little like Adam. It wasn't me, God. It's that woman you gave me. <laughs> it's her fault. <laughs> And men just kept doing that. It's the woman's fault. I'm not responsible for this sin. It's the woman's fault. And because they blamed women for their lust, if a woman went out of the house unveiled, she was thought to be looking for a quote-unquote good time. <laughs> At that time in history, their ignorant culture believed that a woman's hair was actually part of her sexuality. Therefore, it should be appropriately covered at all times, except when she was with her husband. And so women were never, never to be out of the house apart from being with either their husband, their father, or a male, trusted male relative. Now, this did provide the necessary protection that women at that time would have needed but it also provided for the absolute control over women as well. Women were not allowed to testify in court. Women were believed to be born liars. <laughs> they're born that way, they're defective. <laughs> 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 
and not only are they born liars, but they're easily manipulated because they're so stupid. This was the prevailing thought of that culture and time. They thought, and they attributed, especially the Jews, but not just the Jews, they attributed all of this behavior because of Eve. Eve was obviously ignorant and stupid. Therefore, all women are now ignorant and stupid. <laughs> also, women were never arrested. You know why? Because the authorities thought they were just nuisances. They're like, you're not even worth arresting. <laughs> and I guess that's a good thing because that way the women could follow Jesus to the cross and not be arrested. They're like, because you're just nuisances and we're not going to bother with you. They had actual more freedom because the men there thought they were worthless. <laughs> God can use anything. <laughs> also, the rabbis at that time did not consider it necessary for women to learn to read in order to study scripture. Very common practice was to not teach the daughters. And they based this idea on Moses' commands to the Israelites to teach the next generation the word of God. And I just have a little piece of this in Deuteronomy 4.9. This is God telling Moses to tell the people, teach your sons. Now the updated versions say, teach your children. But for thousands of years, people reading the Bible or hearing the Bible heard, teach your sons, which meant, don't teach your daughters. In fact, the Talmud, which is like a vast commentary written by rabbis, is called the Talmud, and it says, it is foolishness to teach Torah to your daughter. Why would she need the word of God? Looks like they're trying to make the law of God fit their own traditional and cultural ideas, which is exactly what they were doing. Also, the women of Jesus' time were thought to be the property of their husbands, whether Jewish or Roman. They got this idea from the Ten Commandments. This is how they used the Word of God. <laughs> In Exodus 20, verse 17, I have the AFV version. It says this, You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife nor his manservant, nor his maidservant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. They said, obviously, women are property. If you can covet it, it's a thing. It can be bought, sold, or disposed of. They were not valued as even human beings. They figured that since everything listed in that command was property, Women were obviously property, too. And as it was for the Jewish women, so it was for most of the Roman women, too. They had absolutely no say over themselves, either. As a wife or a daughter of a Roman citizen or of a Jewish man, neither had any right to inheritance. None of the women in that society had a right to inheritance. Only the sons could inherit which is why it is so important that the Apostle Paul tells us, all believers, that we are all called sons of God, both male and female, because his point is that in Christ we have equal claim to our Father's full inheritance. Around the world, this kind of treatment, this kind of thinking, and these kinds of rules 
still to this day apply. Even where the church is at. That's a problem. Back then, most all wives, both Jewish and Gentile, were all expected to stay at home all of the time. They were not to be seen or heard unless called for by their husbands. Even at home, a wife had no rights apart from what her husband decided she should have. A Roman husband could even sell or kill his wife if he wanted to at any time. But Jewish husbands, they would just throw their wives away when they didn't want them anymore. Many would even not provide a writ of divorce. You know that scripture Jesus says, you're putting your wives away? They weren't giving them writs of divorce. You see, they needed a writ of divorce to be able to marry again. They were still married, but because the man didn't want to return the dowry money, <laughs> he wouldn't give her a divorce. He would just throw her out with any daughters that she might have. Well, in that society, you couldn't go down to the 7-Eleven and get a part-time job. <laughs> you were homeless. You were outcast. Men were not even allowed to speak to you, much less give you employment. And now you've got babies to feed to? What is she going to do? What could she possibly do? Either become an indentured servant or a prostitute. God said he didn't like it. <laughs> He didn't want like men treating women that way. But that was the case back then. And also, a Jewish wife was not even permitted in her own house to eat or interact with male guests in what they call his home. It wasn't considered her home. It was considered his home. And she had to retire to whatever quarters she was commanded to be in. So, neither Jewish nor Roman women were permitted to speak to men outside their homes. It was forbidden by the Talmud, the oral teachings, the traditions, and it was also forbidden by Roman law. <laughs> I always think, wow, those Jesus movies are really wrong. <laughs> they changed the society back then. But you know where we don't find this law? We don't find it in the Old Covenant, which is very interesting in light of 1 Corinthians chapter 14 in verses 34 and 35. Let women keep silence in churches, for it is not permitted for them to speak, but they are commanded, which those words are added, to be under obedience, as also saith the law. And if they will learn anything, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is a shame for women to speak in church. Now what most people don't know is that these two verses are actually suspect in many academic circles and not just by women scholars. <laughs> not all scholars agree that these are actually the words of the Apostle Paul. And just a cursory look at them, we might suspect something might be amiss, because what does he say? As also saith the law. Do you ever see in any of the Apostle Paul's writings that he's a law keeper, <laughs> and that he's imposing laws on people? Uh, no. <laughs> That's why these two verses are very strange. Is the Apostle Paul advocating for some kind of law-keeping just for women? Does that sound like the Apostle Paul? And exactly what law was he supposed to be referring to? We don't know because it doesn't say. But what we do know is that it cannot be referenced in the Old Covenant law. So whatever this law was that he was referring to, it didn't carry the same authority that he was trying to make it say it did. 
Because that command is not found in the Old Covenant anywhere. God never said it. God never said women should be quiet. <laughs> it could be in reference to the Talmud. They did it, think that those were authoritative, but it still would not actually be the word of God, but the traditions of men. Now, one of the reasons these two verses are suspect is because they appear to have been inserted in different locations in chapter 14. That's very strange. <laughs> now, you might think, well, let's look at the original letter and see if these verses are actually there. But most people don't actually recognize that there are no original manuscripts in existence. There are no originals. There are only copies of copies of copies of copies written by men. Not like they had Xerox. It would have been a whole lot easier <laughs> if they had Xerox. <laughs> so scholars are very aware that when scribes would copy a letter, it was not uncommon for them to occasionally add commentary in the margins for clarity. And yes, scribes were usually very careful about making copies. But on occasion, scholars, not me, scholars have stated that there are those instances where it appears that the margin comments were inadvertently incorporated into the original letter. Because one person wrote a comment, they make a copy of it and send it to another church. Or they make a copy of it and send it to another church. Or they make a copy of it. <laughs> you ever play that telephone game? <laughs> it's amazing we have any scripture. <laughs> so, and what makes these two verses particularly suspicious is that in various copies they're inserted in different places. So we know, scholars know, they were inserted. They just don't know why they were inserted or who did the inserting. <laughs> so, unless, of course, uh, an archaeologist unearths an earlier copy of 1 Corinthians, there is no way for us to verify who made those inser inserts. Okay, we don't know if the Apostle Paul inserted them. We don't know if a scribe inserted them, because whoever inserted it sounded like they were mad. <laughs> so we don't know. So what do we do with scriptures that we're not sure about their authenticity? But we don't have anything to get rid of it either. You keep it because we don't know. So we have to then look at it and say, is it consistent with scripture? We know these are suspicious. Maybe they're just out of place. Maybe the Apostle Paul wrote them. But if it's scripture, until we know otherwise, we keep it. <laughs> but then you have to say, okay, what does it actually mean then? See, nobody wants to do something that's against God. Nobody. People take the authenticity of the Word of God very seriously. So we can't just say, well, I don't think this one is of God, so I'm going to take that one out. <laughs> nope. <laughs> They stay there until we know otherwise. But then you have to make it consistent with the overall message of Scripture. Now, we might say, well, why do you bother telling all, me all of this, you know, scholarly junk? <laughs> because we need to know that these verses are suspect so that we don't insist on making them the basis of an absolute doctrine. All believers need to hold them loosely. We don't let go of them as we seek for better understanding, whether we're personally for or personally against women speaking in church. So since these verses have to stay where they are, we have to ask the question, 
Are these actually consistent with what we see throughout Scripture? Are men and women really equal? And if so, do we have equal rights to minister the gospel? (laughs) Most of the scholars and ministers that embrace Reformed theological beliefs accept the notion that women are not equal to men when it comes to leadership. Yes, they accept that women are of equal value to God, but they in fact teach that women are actually inferior to men based on the fact that they were created after Adam. Yes, that is their reasoning. We came last, therefore we're less important. (laughs) Actually, he created all of creation, and then he made Adam. Everything that was made was made for Adam. And then he created Eve. Hmm. Adam? was actually made for her too. That's important. Because God made them equal. Why don't we see Adam interfering with Eve's conversation with the serpent? Because he wasn't her boss. Now God had told him, garden protect the garden. From what? From lion snakes. (laughs) He didn't do his job. But it wasn't his job to forbid her to do anything. She was taken from his side as his equal. She was not created later to be under his feet. So does scripture actually teach that women are less than men? Or is it tradition that teaches that women are less than men? Let's look at Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. And God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the fowl of the air, over the cattle, over the earth, over every creeping thing that creepeth on the earth. Yes, we have authority over creeps. (laughs) Verse 27, so God created man, mankind. God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female created he them. Adam and Eve were originally created by God as equal rulers over all the earth. They both had equal dominion over everything except the other one. Neither one of them had dominion over their spouse, but they had dominion over everything in creation. Together, they brought forth the power of the curse. They couldn't have actually done it alone. (laughs) But when they did it, they brought forth ungodly dominion. You can see this in Genesis chapter 3, verse 16. I have it for you in the ISV version. 3.16. He told the woman, I'll greatly increase the pain of your labor during childbirth. It will be painful for you to bear children. I like the way they did this. Your trust turns toward your husband, yet he will dominate you. I chose this translation on purpose because it paints a much more violent picture and I think it really needs to. Satan has used the power of the curse to completely destroy Eve's original identity as a ruling and reigning son of God and reduced her to a thing to be owned and dominated. And the union that God created to bless both Adam and Eve would literally become a prison for the majority of women around the world. And for the last 2,000 years, much of the church has told women that this is God's will for them. And to rebel against being dominated was actually going against what God wanted for them. Yes, that is what many churches teach. 
Many an abused woman has been told by their clergy that you have no right to leave an abusive husband. It is God's will for them to be ruler over you, regardless of how they rule over you. But the truth is, Jesus came to reverse the curse. (laughs) Through Christ, we have been restored to our original glory, male and female, as sons of God. And we can see this in John chapter 1 and verse 12, which says this, But as many as, doesn't say as many men, (laughs) but as many as receive him, to them he gave power to become sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, be restored to our original design. In Romans 8, beginning in verse 14, for all, not just men, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God, ruling and reigning sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, not even if you're a woman, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. In Christ, all are sons, male and female. All are heirs of God himself and all are fellow heirs with Jesus. Therefore, all are equal, just like in the beginning. We see this also in chapter 3 of Galatians, beginning with verse 25. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. We being men and women. (laughs) For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female. For you are all one in Christ. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. I used to think, what does he mean there is no male and no female? You know why I used to think that? Because I didn't know what it meant to be dominated. I didn't know what it meant to be a slave or a prisoner in your own house. I didn't know. Now I knew what it was to be under sin, (laughs) which is the same kind of thing. It's a prison. But in Christ, the curse is reversed. Jesus became a curse for us. Therefore, we have all been set free from the bondage of sin, and have been restored to right relationship with our Father. Now, as far as God is concerned, we all have equal rights, equal privileges, equal blessings, and equal freedoms. And one of those freedoms is the right to have the fullness of the Holy Spirit at work in us and through us, through our actions and through our words, both male and female. The Holy Spirit was poured out on both males and females. The evidence that they had received the Holy Spirit would be what came out of their mouths. We see it in in Acts 2, verses 17 and 18. In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my Spirit, and they shall prophesy. It was the power of the Holy Spirit is what Christ had done in a believer that gave them that equality. To prophesy is to speak under the unction of the Holy Spirit. And everybody, male and female, by the Holy Spirit, that's what makes everybody equal, (laughs) can use their words. 
they have the right to preach the gospel. To prophesy is to speak under the unction of the Holy Spirit, and it includes specifically public speaking for the benefit of those listening. And it also includes expounding the scriptures. We see a woman doing just that in Acts chapter 18, verses 24 and 26. It says this, Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. What? <laughs> a woman teaching a man more accurately? <laughs> And what's interesting is Paul mentions her first. According to the traditions of men and Greek grammar, a woman's name would never come before a man's name in a written document unless she was held in higher esteem or was seen by the Apostle Paul as being the stronger leader, the stronger teacher of them both. But they were actually a team. They were married. They were a couple. They were a team. They were co-teaching, co-preaching, and co-ministering. You'd be surprised how much of that is actually in the Scripture. Through Christ being poured out through the Holy Spirit, our Heavenly Father has restored to us both men and women His original design for marriage. Husband and wife are united in and through the life of Christ, ministering God's love and truth as a team, as co-equals and co-heirs of the grace of life. Of course, not everyone is called to public ministry, but all believers are called to minister to each other and to those they love through the power and graces of the Holy Spirit. Now, you might be tempted because, like me, you were taught through the traditions of men to think that Priscilla is just an exception to the rule, <laughs> that the churches were all led by men. But is that what the Word of God says? Or is that what the traditions of men say? In the book of Romans, Paul recognizes no less than nine different women in public ministry, many of which are included with their spouses. So it appears married couples were often chosen for successful church leadership. God likes leadership teams. <laughs> we find these honorable mentions in the last chapter of Romans 16, beginning with verse 1. I commend unto you Phoebe, our sister, which is a servant of the church, which is at Centuria. Now, what's really interesting about Phoebe is that the translators choose to call her a servant of the church. But the translators regarding Paul, when Paul said the same thing about himself, that he had been chosen by God to be a minister of the gospel. Same word. Same exact word. In fact, the scholars know that this particular word, this one, is referring to someone who's been ordained by the church. She's official. <laughs> and she's a girl. <laughs> Most people don't understand. They think, oh, she just worked at the church. No, she was probably the pastor. Verse 2, that ye receive her in the Lord. Now, why would Paul need to tell a congregation to receive a woman? <laughs> because they didn't, usually. 
So receive her in the Lord as become the saints. In other words, you mind your manners regarding her. She's one of my favorites. <laughs> that ye assist her in whatever business she hath need of you. Wow. And it says, put out the red carpet. For she hath been a succorer of many and of myself also. She was obviously well-to-do. She was supporting the ministries financially. And she was doing that with Paul, working with Paul, financially supporting him and other ministries. She was the pastor. Verse 3. Greet Priscilla and Aquila as my helpers in Christ. Again, he says Priscilla first, recognizing her as the stronger leader. Who have for my life laid down their own necks, unto whom not only I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. Likewise, greet the church that is in their house co-pastors. Salute my well-beloved Epineus, I'm guessing, <laughs> who is the firstfruits of Acacia unto Christ. Greet Mary, another woman, who bestowed much labor on us. Salute Andronicus and Junia, married couple. My kinsmen and fellow prisoners, yes, they all went to prison together for preaching Jesus, <laughs> who are of note among the apostles, who were also in Christ Jesus before me. Both Andronicus and Junia are considered to be apostles by the Apostle Paul. The scholars say that they were a married couple working together as co-equals in ministry. The name Junia is never used as a male name, ever. It's only ever in all of the Greek literature where that you find the name Junia, it has never been a man's name. Now you, you might say, well, who cares? <laughs> we care. Translators have consistently and purposely mistranslated Junia's name to make it masculine. Not because the context would dictate that they should, but only because they don't believe in or approve of women in ministry. Therefore, Junia couldn't possibly be an apostle if she were female. Therefore, she must be a man. <laughs> so they changed her name. And you know what? I never would have noticed. <laughs> because I don't speak Greek. <laughs> and so it is with most of us. Most of us have been taught the traditions of men regarding women in ministry. Believing we were taught the word of God. But believing the traditions of men, even unintentionally, still makes the word of God of no effect. The Word of God says that Jesus told his disciples to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. That means all people, both male and female. But if women believe only men are allowed to do public ministry, then only men will end up doing public ministry. And that is obviously not what God had in mind. So what light does this information shed on the scripture that says women should be silent in church? Well, it means it obviously can't be applied to all women. And that's really the key to understanding both places in Scripture where it appears as though Paul is limiting women regarding public ministry. He's actually addressing specific situations in specific churches. He wasn't writing to us. He was writing to them. <laughs> and as we know, the church at Corinth was a bit of a mess. <laughs> that's why the Apostle Paul was writing to them. He was trying to iron out their wrinkles and their traditions of men while simultaneously attempting to train them how to properly conduct church meetings. Scripture is very clear. The meetings were out of control. 
People were popping up like popcorn, speaking in tongues and giving interpretations, praying and prophesying, both men and women, by the way, expounding scripture, and no one was being polite. And that was really Paul's point. Everything should be done decently in order. It shouldn't be chaos. That means without the chaos of everyone being able to be first or loudest or best. You remember those baby Christians? Oh, I speak in tongues. Well, you don't. Well, see, I'm more spiritual than you. <laughs> they were always trying to compete, always trying to be best. Paul said, this is wrong. <laughs> and so he tells him in chapter 13 that real ministry is about agape love, not about showing off. <laughs> now, even the best and brightest scholars cannot tell us for sure what exactly was happening with the women that needed to be silenced. And that's because Paul doesn't tell us. But scholars who understand the historical and cultural context have given us some of their best guesses. It is possible that if you took women who were basically imprisoned in their homes and who were forbidden to have fellowship with other adults, including other men, and who were forbidden to be taught the Word of God, and you brought them to church and got them filled with the Holy Spirit, they might find it hard to control their mouth. <laughs> you see ladies who haven't seen each other in a while? <laughs> yep. <laughs> church is for fun and for fellowship. <laughs> Which is exactly what many scholars believed what was happening. Paul was basically saying that there were particular women who were being disruptive during service. They were chatting with their friends when they should be paying attention. <laughs> the King James actually says, let your women keep silence in the church. Which women? All women? No, it's just those wild, crazy, uh, disruptive Corinthian women. <laughs> the ones who are misbehaving. <laughs> those women who were being loud and chatty with their friends during service, and the women who were being super expressive with their spiritual gifts. You ever been around one of those? <laughs> and those who were asking a million questions at inopportune times. In those services, you were allowed to ask questions, but these women haven't been taught anything. So they have to ask questions about everything, and they weren't getting very far. So they're like, would you just please stop? <laughs> <laughs> they were being very disruptive. And Paul says, at church, all things should be done decently and in order. I think we can safely say that the Apostle Paul wasn't referring to all women when he said, let your women keep silence in the churches. Paul obviously championed women in ministry, and I think the church should too. The global church of the Lord Jesus Christ needs a revelation of what it means that we are all sons of God. When I was preparing for this message, I couldn't believe that the Jewish people would deny women the right to hear the word of God. It seems absurd to me. For the last 2,000 years, up until the last 100 years, women were denied the right to go to seminary. They were denied the right to study the word of God. Why? Because you're a girl. <laughs> when I first came to the Lord as an adult, when I found out I was actually already saved, <laughs> I had this unquenchable thirst and hunger for the Word of God. And I studied, and I didn't have anything to study with. All I had was a regular dictionary and a King James Bible. <laughs> but God can make anything work. <laughs> and I went to God, and I studied, and I worked, and God, show me who you are. And help me to know who you are. And to think that women 
all over the world today are still suffering that same condemnation. You're not good enough to speak the word of God. I told God one time, God, if I could do one thing for the rest of my life and nothing else, I would choose to study your word because it's everything. It's life. It's truth. I know you best when I know you in the word. And that's what I want for all women. Because not only are we, should we be allowed to study, but we should be allowed to preach. You see, most denominations aren't against women going on mission fields to preach. Why? Because they're not in our church. <laughs> they have a double standard, and they think it's from God, and it's not. A friend of ours who is theologically of the Reformed belief system, truly saved, truly born again, and he came to church, and I was ministering. And God got all up in his business, read his mail, and afterward he's like, I know God spoke through you, but you're a girl. <laughs> he didn't know what to do with it because verses like this one are shoved down women's and men's throats all the time that women are less, they're not smart enough, they're not good enough to have everything God has for them, which is not simply not true. In Christ Jesus, we are all equal. We are all recreated in the very image of God and filled with the very same Holy Spirit. And it is Holy Spirit who empowers us and the entire body of Christ to display God's unconditional love and acceptance of our Heavenly Father and our Jesus, through whom he has created us to be. And it is the Holy Spirit who empowers the body of Christ to display the unconditional love and acceptance of our Heavenly Father and I, Jesus, through whom he has created us to be just like him. You being able to use the gifts and graces and callings that we have received from him. It is God who does the calling. It is God who does the equipping. And it's his work in and through all believers, male and female. The truth is, nobody actually believes that women should not be able to speak in church. No one. Can you imagine somebody meeting you at the door and saying, okay, you, you're a girl. No talking, no praying, no prophesying, no singing. You're a girl. No, nobody believes that unless you want to do it from a pulpit. Then suddenly we fall short. It's ridiculous. <laughs> so today I pray that those who have been taught the traditions of men regarding women in ministry, they come to the revelation that God has not called us to compete with each other as men and women, but to help complete each other in ministry. Both men and women are called to lead, pray, to worship, and to minister by the power of the Holy Spirit. It is all of God, period. Amen? What was interesting is uh, when I got up this morning, I looked at my phone, and there was this big announcement. The Pope has decided to let females have offices of importance within the Catholic Church. And I was like, wow, they can't be priests yet. <laughs> But at least they were elevated to office staff, <laughs> overseers and stuff like that. So yes, God is at work. God is at work all around the world. All around the world, 90% of all churches, women are less than men. 90%. That's not right. They all need the same opportunities to be all that God has called them to be. Amen? 
Father God, I thank you for the truth of your word. I thank you, Father God, that Junia is an apostle. I thank you, Lord, that Phoebe was a minister of a church. I thank you, Father God, that you put in your word stuff we could discover as truth, that you made it so that we don't have to continue to receive and believe the traditions of men and make the word of God of none effect. I thank you, Father God, that you have made us all equal, all equal in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. You have equally equipped us with the same power of the Holy Spirit. You have different callings for us, absolutely, but you have equipped us completely to have perfect fellowship with you. We are the bride of Christ. We are that which completes you, and you complete us. We thank you for all of these truths in Jesus' name. Amen.